Thank you for listening to Time to Pause. Join us next time as we continue the conversation with industry leader, Dr. Kimberly Kodaka. Make it a great day. Hi there, everybody. I'd like to introduce my guest today, Dr. Bob Lester. Bob remains as passionate about the veterinary profession as the day he entered veterinary school sometime last century. He is a firm believer in the veterinary profession's double bottom line proposition of doing well by doing good. Bob spent his early career as a small town mixed animal veterinary practice owner before joining the founding leadership team at Banfield. That was followed by joining the founding leadership teams at Lincoln Memorial University College of Veterinary Medicine as assistant dean, and now as the chief medical officer and co-founder of Wellhaven Pet Health, a family of veterinary-led AHA companion animal practice. Bob serves on a number of boards, including Wellhaven's Pet Health, vice president at NAVC, and treasurer of Pet Peace of Mind, a nonprofit that keeps pets together with hospice patients through the end of life. Most importantly, his family includes his wife, Crystal, two remarkable daughters, Mackenzie and Paige, and two rescue Yorkies, Jesse and Woody. And with that, I'd like to welcome Bob. How are you? Thank you. I'm great. Thank you, Kimberly. Appreciate the opportunity. Oh, well, thank you for, for coming on and, and sharing your experience and uh, knowledge with the community here. Um, that's what we're all about, inspiring others through our stories. So thank you for coming. Happy to. So your origins are in private practice, and you progressed to opening a veterinary college. I'm curious how your career evolved, the decisions that you made, and what opportunities you took advantage of to, to get where you are today. Um, yeah, thank you, Kimberly. So it's, it, it wasn't always a straight line and wasn't entirely intentional. As I kind of reflect back on my career and still lots of gas in the tank and lots of hills to climb ahead of me, but as I look in the rearview mirror, um, I like to think I was open to trying new things, uh, open to saying yes, um, keeping a wide network so you're kind of aware of what's going on in your local and state and national veterinary community just to see what opportunities are, are available. Um, and likely that's kind of what's led me along a, a, my career path to date. Few regrets along the way. That's great. And that brings up really the point, you know, one, it's a circuitous or winding road, as you mentioned, but it also sounds that you weren't too vested or worried about a right or wrong choice. You were comfortable with trying things and following a path. I think that's true. Um, always had a contingency. If, if this path doesn't go the way I want, there's one of the beauties, as you and I know, and other veterinary professionals, there's so many opportunities in this profession. If run road doesn't look like it's going where you want to, then it's time to jump on another road. There's no shortage of them. Yeah, and I feel that that's such an important message um, for people not to get 
tied up with it having to look or go a certain way or trudging along because this is a decision they made and maybe it's not working for them anymore. So um, I love I love you being open-minded and taking advantage of opportunities and um, it certainly has paid off. And we're in the right profession for lots of opportunities. I <laughs> agreed. So mixed animal practice, you know, kind of the pursuit of the true James Harriet lifestyle has a bit of a uh, toughen up and get going reputation. What mentorship, if any, did you receive in your early years? Yeah, again, looking in the rearview mirror and reflecting back, um, and, and my passion, like many of my generation and even today, was, was to be a James Harriet, small town mixed animal practitioner, um, and it, it was wonderful. No regrets again. As I think back of mentorship, mentorship was not stressed um, at the time. I don't even know that we identified it or talked much about it. My first year um, in practice, I signed a one-year agreement to join a a small three-doctor mixed animal practice on the Southern Oregon coast. We did about half cow-calf dairy and about half companion animal. Um, and it, it was a wonderful year. However, there, there was little to no mentorship. It was, here's the truck, here's the keys, here's where you're going, and you kind of sink or swim, which was terrifying, but also rewarding. I, I learned a ton that year, a, a lot of good things, but you also learn from the more difficult lessons as well. And as I completed my one-year obligation there and then bought into a, another small animal or mixed animal practice closer to where I grew up, my partner in that practice was 10 years out of school, and he was truly a wonderful mentor. Again, we didn't talk about mentorship. We didn't really identify it, but he was stable, um, calm, supportive, um, a great teacher, just, just a wonderful man. I, I learn more from him, Dr. Dave Larson, than probably any of the other thousands of veterinarians I've met in my career since. Mm, that's, that's wonderful. I'm curious, just looking back on that, you know, you went, you learned through the School of Hard Knocks, I guess that's what it's called. What do you think the value of learning from your mistakes is versus this mindset that, you know, there's a deep desire and a need for mentorship. I, I am fully on board, as you know, with the mentoring bandwagon. But one of the things that I think is a little prevalent nowadays is really the inability or the, the, sh the dramatic shame that comes with an error. You know, I'm not even talking about a life-taking error, but um, what, do you, what do you think about that tolerance to just you know, learning and taking steps and having a process. Yeah, I, th I think we, we have to give ourselves some grace that we are going to make mistakes. And frankly, when we make mistakes is when we're on the steepest part of the learning curve and we're learning the most, that, that failure is not that horrible thing that, assuming it's not a, a life or death thing, failure is actually a good thing. Learn fast, move forward. As I think of mentorship, I, I kind of think of three players um, certainly our academic institutions have some obligation to get us competent and competent and practice ready. And then whoever hires us as a new graduate, um, and we certainly take that very seriously in our practice, there's, there's a major obligation when you bring that new or young graduate on to help them out. There's an obligation from the, the, your first boss or first few bosses, and you need to make that clear. 
But I think that the piece that's sometimes forgotten, and I often coach students and new grads on, ultimately they own their own learning. Um, I can share all I can share and academia can give all that academia can. At the end of the day, there, there's three players there. There's, there's your boss or mentor, there's academia, and there's you, the learner. And that doesn't stop as a new graduate. I like to think we're all lifelong learners. We're always going to make mistakes. We, we need to get up and move on and recognize that growth comes when we're most uncomfortable. Yeah, yes. Thank you for that, because I definitely encourage people to lean into that discomfort, be a lifelong learner, and be okay with taking something on that you're not perfect at yet, but knowing that you aren't going to do harm and, uh, and learning from it, you know, and going through. So thank you. Oh, of course. And, and your mission and just having got to know you the last few weeks and looked at your website and mentoring and coaching and, and that's so critical. So good for you for what you're doing for individuals as well as the profession. We both have deep passion. So it's, uh, it makes us feel good to do those things. So thank you. Yes, it does. So as, as a founding team member of several organizations, which have substantially impacted the veterinary field and community, you exemplify incredible leadership skills. I'm curious as to how you hone those skills and how you advise future generations on developing and being comfortable in leading, whether it's in their hospital or in the bigger arena. Yeah, like you, um, like all of us as veterinary professionals, there. There wasn't a course we took in tech school or vet school that turned us into leaders. Um, my learning leadership, and it, it's a continuing journey, has largely been on the job, making mistakes, listening, staying curious, looking to people I admire and, and trying to learn from them. Um, and then I, I'm, I'm a reader as well. So I've, a number of leadership books along the way have also influenced me. Mm -hmm. um, so leadership's a lifelong journey. I don't know that anybody ever is there, but it, it's a it's a really fun opportunity. There, there's so much personally and professionally that comes out of really intentionally becoming self-aware, looking at your gaps, looking at your strengths, and looking how you can help those around you be more successful. Yeah, I, I was thinking when you just said making those others around you um, more successful, that, that leadership can also, it doesn't have to always be isolationary, you know, it, it, it does foster a team and everybody playing their part and their role and, and um, working together. And that's a very, depending on your personality, some people are more loners and some more outgoing, but I, I think that 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 can be an aspect of leadership, which appeals more to me that it, it really brings me together with people who think and are open. And then I, I help to bring out the best in them by encouraging them to, to uh, pursue their love and their passion. Yeah, without a doubt. And as, as we look at leading, you have to know those people that choose to follow you and where are their strengths and how can you really help them with those strengths and knowing where you're weak and where you can lean into them. And it's, it's a fun, it, 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 it's a lot of fun. It's always learning. And as a leader, I think in years ago, people adopted a style and had to surround themselves with people that adapted to that style. And I think today, more progressive leaders, you and I have to look at the people around us and adapt our style to best fit their needs to make a, a more successful and, and rewarding team. Yeah. 
And sometimes let it, having a goal or a purpose, but letting them get there their way. <laughs> yep, yep. And sometimes that means making mistakes along the way and, and letting them fall. That's, that's part of the growth curve. Yeah, absolutely. Awesome advice. Given your intricate experience in the field, including the creation of the vet school, what are your thoughts regarding the concerns and future of new vet grads, such as student debt, career wellness, and, and hours, et cetera? Yeah, um, I am ever the optimist. So my five years in academia was fabulous, and our profession is in good hands. That, that The graduates that are coming out now and that are in school are so smart and that idealistic and team players and our profession will will only get better that said you bring up a couple of of good points around student debt is unsustainable um, it just went up another four and a half percent or four and a half times more than incomes are going up wellness is an enormous issue um, we've we've got to really help them there and that was one of the things that was really gratifying about my time at lmu you can tell I love startups and startups are wonderful in that you can, you start with a blank sheet with the way you think it should be built and looking at academia to, to create students that are confident career ready at LMU and, and I'm happy to say at many schools now, there was a real focus on professional skills like communication and leadership and financial acumen and all of the, the so-called soft skills that truly distinguish the people that are successful, as well as um, real-world um, general practice experience, professional skills. We, we were able to do a number of things, wellness, counseling, things to help students prepare them to be successful when they hit the workplace. So it, it was a great time. Our profession is in good hands, and academia is really morphing to, to better prepare tomorrow's students. Actually, it occurred to me, do from your generation, um, um, I was one or earlier, um, what, what were some of these concerns? I mean, certainly student debt wasn't there, but were there issues of wellness or work-life balance or different things like that that just weren't as either acceptable or talked about or out in the open? Yeah, and I'm about to make some sweeping generational observations, which of course aren't always accurate, but I think directionally as a boomer boomers sadly we are what we do um, work comes first and life takes a distant second and that's mm -hmm. just the way we were wired that's how we grew up that's what we do and and many of us still struggle to remember that that life comes before work subsequent generations are so much smarter and they recognize that life comes first so work-life balance and reasonable schedules and spending time with family and getting vacation time, all of those things are critical. And, and that wasn't given a lot of emphasis once upon a time, particularly for those of us that were boomers. And, and that's not entirely bad. That was the norm then. And as a result of that, I'd like to think that boomers really took the profession and put it in a good position for subsequent generations to grow it even further. But, but there is a significant generational difference in how we look at work-life balance, work-life continuum, how we choose to, to order our lives. Um, not necessarily a right or a wrong, but in general, my take as a boomer is 
subsequent younger generations are far healthier to re remember that life comes before work. It's not the other way around. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So as a general practitioner, I never thought that I would be speaking to one of the founders of Banfield. And so this is a unique opportunity for me to um, ask your opinion on the pros and cons or a pro and con associated with uh, corporate uh, veterinary medicine. You know, ha have things kind of played out according to the original um, ambitions and goals? How do you feel that um, it's impacted local veterinary ownership and the potential for new and younger veterinarians to actually get into owning uh, their own veterinary hospitals? Yeah, I'll, um, if I get wound up here, you can, you can give me the hook, Kimberly. This, this is a, this is a, a long topic and, and a fun topic. So first of all, credits where credit's due. A couple of classmates of mine um, were truly the brains behind getting Banfield off the ground. And I was there early on, but not at, at a strategic level. So kudos to others. Um, as I think of potential for younger owners, I sincerely believe, and I say it all the time, that there's never been a better time to be a veterinarian than right now. If someone is interested in equity and ownership, this is a great time. Lend, as, a, as a veterinarian, assuming your credit score is good, there are lenders lined up for you. There's a huge abundance of pets and pet parents and pets. The bond has never been stronger. You could open your own hospital. You can look at some of the franchise opportunities. It is more difficult to buy larger existing practices with the corporates paying a premium right now mm -hmm. but that shouldn't hinder anyone from from if they're interested in owning there are there are great opportunities as to kind of our original vision of of kind of what's become of corporate practice um originally of course banfield was all veterinary led and that brought some great things that brought the heart of veterinary professionals that brought a vision um, it also brought some limitations as veterinarians were not necessarily experts at IT and HR and marketing and, and we did some really good things there. And, and I give Banfield huge credit for tackling several enormous issues. One just being barriers to care with veterinarians inside pet stores seven days a week. That, that broke down enormous barriers to care for more pet parents to get in and get mm -hmm. care for their pet. And the second thing I give huge credit for is just the real focus on preventive care. To me, that, that's, that's the linchpin of our profession. Kind of on the flip side, when, um, when we sold to the Mars family, they brought tons of, of expertise and big brains and huge investments and, and have done some really remarkable things. I, I, Banfield is, and the Mars family, I, I think is largely a, a force for good in, in the profession. That said, on kind of the flip side, on the downside, this is kind of a, a comment on culture. Um, I believe they, they inadvertently brought a manufacturer's mindset that has resulted in what I think of as a compliance culture, where I'm a big fan of a commitment culture. So imagine a, an enormous manufacturer that is nobody better in the world at making kibble and gum and M&Ms. Um, they know assembly lines. They know line management. They know hierarchies. They know top down all of which are critical in that manufacturing environment. When you take that culture and you try to overlay it on a highly educated healthcare profession, um, mm -hmm. I don't believe that always works. 
And it, if, if we can move from a compliance hierarchical top-down line management to more of a commitment with doctor leadership, local leadership, bottom-up, recognizing that veterinarians, veterinary professionals, pet parents should be at the top of the pyramid and the, the Harvard MBAs at the bottom. It's a subtle distinction, but I think it's an important one. And if I had to, to poke a hole at, at my past employer, and, and again, I owe them everything. I learned a ton there. It was a great ride. They're doing amazing things for our profession, but they, I believe, inadvertently built a compliance culture that's very much about checklists and top-down where I believe we can be stronger with a commitment uh, culture where it, we're all in with our heart and our head and it's bottom up and it's veterinary professional led. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, I always talk with uh, friends and colleagues about, you know, the relationships, the relational basis of veterinary medicine, you know, the relationship of the client to their pet, to you, to their pet, to the client. Knock on wood, I think when you get that, that, that level of uh, connection and trust, I, you know, most of us do not have a problem figuring out a way to get what needs to be done for the pet and or um, at least in a way that's going to keep its quality of life and things like that. And so, yeah, I, I, I definitely can hear um, that some of that more, more personal connectedness and the basis of the relationship might have been. Um, yep. We are in the relationship business. That's that's what we're all about. Yeah, absolutely. And actually, that's a perfect segue into Pet Peace of Mind. This is a new organization that I researched in preparation for our talk. As I mentioned in the bio, you know, it works with terminally ill clients, keeping the, um, allowing them to continue the care and be with their pets. Um, that is such a beautiful and important model. Can you share how you got involved and, and really its value to reinforcing the power and the significance of this human-animal bond? Yeah, this, this is very near to my heart. So a good friend of mine is the founder and CEO of Pet Peace of Mind, and, and it, it really fills a unique niche where we're all aware of lots of great nonprofits in the, in the placing pets in new home space, and there are lots of nonprofits in the hospice space, but there's nobody that connects the two. And, and at end of life, sadly, often the only relationship, the real connection is between that pet parent and their pet. Um, and that pet is often neglected uh, as people go into hospice and, and reach the end of their journey. So Pet Peace of Mind is there to work with local hospices. We're in, I believe, 43 states, approaching 200 hospices now, where we've put together a, a turnkey volunteer-driven program that takes care of all of that pet's needs from grooming to nutrition, to veterinary care, to dog walking, to whatever it might be to keep that pet and that, that hospice patient together right up through end of life. And then to let that hospice patient know when they're ready to let go, we, we will place that pet in a new forever home. And, and it's remarkable how powerful that is that, that people won't let go until they know that their beloved four-legged fur baby is, is going to find a great home. And before I forget, Kimberly, should anyone be interested, um, they can check out petpeaceofmind.org to learn more. And we are always looking for volunteers, veterinarians, veterinary technician, nurses, um, at the heart of each of the hospices that, that run this program, there is a veterinarian or veterinary nurse subject matter expert 
they're not necessarily contributing their services or their time, but their expertise, just to kind of be the quarterback to let people know what are the pet's needs and, and to make sure that that pet does get all its need and there to help them through that whole transition. It's a fabulous organization. It is. And so are you, are, are you having to convince through your program the hospice business and location to allow pets in or are you only going into um, hospice areas that already allow pets or or how how do, a bit of both how does this get set up yeah it's kind of interesting so we kind of have the model that shows local hospices how to do it so as you can imagine there are thousands of hospices across the U.S. and they often struggle with just this issue is here's a hospice patient, but they have a pet and perhaps they have no other family or perhaps they do, but no one can care for the pet. What are they going to do? And often that means relinquishing the pet. So as we make ourselves available as a training program to help that hospice put together a little volunteer group with our training and our coaching and our advice and our network on how best to care for that pet and then rehome them at the end it, it's just a perfect match. So though hospices um, typically come to us and say, we love what you're doing. We, we want to be a part of it. Show us how to do it. And we show them how to do it. Awesome. Yeah, no, that's brilliant. I mean, people won't do a lot of things if they don't feel comfortable, uh, if it means leaving their pets and if they don't feel comfortable with the outcome. I mean, even in abuse, domestic violence, yes. and stuff like that, yes. you know, people won't yep. leave the animal. So yeah, thank you very much for that great organization. I'm, I'm definitely gonna um, look them up and look them up in my area. Is it possible that at some point in your illustrious career um, and all your successes, that there was a turning point in your level of satisfaction or even a moment of uh, overwhelm or burnout? Oh, of course. I think I think we all do. There's there's been a number of times where I've. Um, I've hit the wall or I've become disenchanted or I've, I've pushed myself enough that I've gotten in a position that I'm, I'm probably over my skills and competency and fortunately been able to back up or change directions or dig in in some cases and, and power through. But I think we all hit those times and, and, and I've certainly hit a few myself. Wow, you're human after all. <laughs> a true <laughs> <laughs> You know, I mean, one of the things that's important for people to hear, you know, there are times where all of us kind of don't feel like the situation is right. And although sometimes maybe powering over that hill or gaining that new skill, as we were talking about um, being a forever learner, maybe that's needed. But sometimes the changing or moving on to a different situation might be really the spark that's needed to to rekindle your um your passion yeah i think so i've i've got a good friend and colleague dr jen bruns who she she calls it white coat off when i look back at the times i've i've hit the wall and i've struggled i'm i i think i was too buried in the professional end of my life and i made that take over everything and by white coat off, she means the, the really important things in life occur when we're not wearing the white coat, when we don't have on the scrubs, when we don't have on the stethoscope. So you may have some, some career crises to fight through, but if we can gain perspective and step back and remember family and loved ones and others, 
just to help kind of put it in perspective. We aren't what we do. We're, we're a lot more than that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So in order to, to keep this optimistic and energetic and passionate outlook that you have for veterinary medicine and to come up with all your innovative ideas. Are there any activities that you intentionally do to care for yourself or recharge or step away or get the white coat off? <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm a person of routine and, and what I'll share is, is not unique. No, no silver bullets here. Um, I, I get up early every morning. I get my 10,000 steps in. I typically have a couple of podcasts that I listen to to try to continue to learn. I try to get seven or eight hours of sleep a night. I struggle to eat right, but more often than not, I do. And, and then it's all about social connections, friends and colleagues and family. And of course, we're fortunate in this profession, we get that, that pets also play a big part of that. So mm -hmm. take care of ourselves, sleep, work out a little bit, eat right, stay connected with friends and family and, and connect with your pets. Yeah. Yeah. I say I got a new dog. Actually, she's, she's about just over a year now, but you know, sometimes, um, you know, she, she'll be jumping and scratching and nudging and nudging and I'm busy and I'm like, what, what? And <laughs> I pick her up and she's licking all in my face. And before, literally before, five seconds go by. She's got me laughing and yep. just takes me down a notch and, you know, don't be so serious all the time and have a little fun. So um, yeah, that unconditional love and that, that connection is huge. And that's certainly been clear with this COVID pandemic that everyone is turning to their pets for that connection. It's, it's, yeah. it's more important now than ever. Yeah. 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 And they're happy to do it. They're happy to do it. You've, you've shared so much valuable knowledge and, and take-homes from your, your experience. If anybody would like to reach out to you or ask a question or follow up on anything, how would you like people to perhaps uh, contact you or find you? Yeah, I'm happy to connect with anyone. It's such a great profession. And the bigger and deeper our network, the better we all are. So two ways. One, they can certainly find me on LinkedIn, just Bob Lester, L-E-S-T-E-R. Or my email address is uh, bob.lesterdvm, so bob.lesterdvm at wellhaven.com, W-E-L-L-H-A-V-E-N, just like it sounds. So bob.lesterdvm at wellhaven.com. Thank you. Thank you very much. And I'll post those in, uh, in the show notes as well. So um, the listeners don't know this, but um, I met you and we had a wonderful conversation as a result of your article, Onward and Upward, Today's Veterinary Business, which I totally loved and had to reach out. I normally wrap up my podcast interviews by asking for two or three lessons learned or pearls of wisdom. But I thought I'd give you the, the choice of what, how you would like to end, um, whether you would like to share some pearls of wisdom or perhaps talk about a few of your wonderful ideas for the future of veterinary medicine. Well, thank you, Kimberly. Um, yes, I write a column called Creative Disruption for Today's Veterinary Business, um, something I never thought I would do. And and frankly, underestimated. When asked, I thought, well, what could be so hard about writing a column? It's, it's, <laughs> uh, it's a lot of work. So maybe I'll share a couple of things from the column that you and I talked about. And mm -hmm. I'll, I'll preface that. And, and likely it's been clear from our earlier conversation. 
I am a huge optimist. I'm very bullish on our profession. You just look around at what's going on. We've got record numbers of pets, record pet spending, pet lifespans are up, euthanasias are down, adoptions are up. Um, the respect that the veterinary professionals have with, with clientele, it, there's just so many tailwinds and so many great things going on. That said, as with any profession, there's things we can improve. And as I look at the things that our profession most needs to address, and, and I think there's good progress and optimism on all, I kind of lump them into four baskets. And one, I think, is the cost of education. Um, two, I think, is the cost of care. Three is the wellness issues our profession is, is struggling with. And, and fourth is uh, the workforce shortage that we're struggling with as well. So part of my, when I write the column or, or part of my life advice to my kids or others is it's okay to pose a problem, but try to pair it with a solution. So as I try to think of solutions for some of the things that our profession is, is working to overcome, I land on three things. Um, and I'll, I'll, I'll kind of briefly touch on ETH on each, but the, as we look at dealing, again, with a workforce shortage, with wellness issues, with barriers to care, the first two I call techs and tech. Um, techs meaning veterinary technicians. Our profession has not embraced veterinary technician nurses, has not embraced a team healthcare delivery model. When we look at any other similar profession, physicians, um, dentists, optometrists, they have highly engaged, empowered, well-paid teams around them. Um, they're able to be more productive and in some cases, perhaps more satisfied. The, the typical physician has five licensed people around them, dentists three, veterinarians we have one. Over 8,000 kids a year graduating from uh, 200 plus vet tech schools up against about 3,200 of us that graduate from 32 vet schools. That's about two and a half techs per vet. That's a good ratio, sadly in nature, those vet techs are leaving by their seventh year in the profession, and we're up down to about one vet to one vet tech, and that's that's entirely our fault as veterinarians. We need to empower, we need to delegate, we need to respect them, we need to honor them. So all that to say, one of the things I look at that could really drive our profession forward, and again, I'm optimistic there's some great things happening, is we've got to embrace team-based healthcare delivery as other healthcare professionals do, and at the heart of that are veterinary technicians. The second thing when I talk about techs and tech, the second tech being technology, COVID has really normalized telehealth. When we look as a profession at the things we can be doing with technology, recognizing that our dominant workforce as well as our dominant consumer now are what I call pet gen, millennials and Gen Zs together or pet gen. They are the digital generation. They are looking for technology. So telehealth, telemed, teletriage, AI, cloud-based PIMs, e-commerce, texting, all of those things are just tools to, to better support that personal relationship that you and I talked about earlier that our profession is famous for. They don't take the place of that personal relationship. They only help boost it and help us touch pet parents more and more often. So again, as I look at how we can continue to grow this great profession even further, techs and tech, technicians and technology, are, are huge. And then the third thing I always push for is preventive care. Um, you and I as GPs, preventive care should be what it's all about. Um, sadly, to some extent, in both human and veterinary care, it's monetized on sick care. Sick care is what's, is, is what's really honored. It's what we think is cool. And preventive care is the answer to so many of the wellness issues with 
for pets, certainly they live longer. For pet parents, who of course live longer by having pets, but also for us, if we're if we're truly educating clients through techs and technology and, and personal relationships on the value of immunizations and parasites and behavior and nutrition and good dental care, not only do pets and pet parents do better, but I believe we as vet professionals will do better by, by kind of pushing things upstream, meaning that we get away from so much of the reactive and urgent and dramatic and stressful care that we're stuck with now for want of having educated clients earlier on the value of preventive care. So a long rambling answer that one, I'm very bullish on this profession. There's so many good things going on. The issues we have around workforce shortage and wellness and barriers to care and, and cost of care, cost of education. There are solutions out there that many of us are embracing and vet techs, technology and preventive care are right at the center of all of that. I think that is just awesome, inspiring, motivating um, a future that you have there. I, I could we we've spoken about these topics um, before um, in more detail, and you know we both are in total agreement for that. But I'm glad that we broached them out there for the audience to listen to, um, hopefully discuss with their friends and colleagues, and and um, you know stir it around a little bit and try to move forward in those areas. This has been such a great conversation. It has been. I appreciate it, Kimberly. Our, our future is bright and lots of like-minded people out there committed to, to continuing to drive our profession forward. Absolutely. So, Bob, I would like to thank you for taking the time to pause with us today. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Time to Pause. Join us next time as we continue the conversation with industry leader, Dr. Kimberly Kodaka. Make it a great day.